0: Well, I was sent this recently, and I I knew you'd enjoy it. Listen to this. After nearly 50 years of marriage, Ole and Lena were lying in bed. One evening, and it was dark, when Lena suddenly felt Ole begin to massage her in ways that he hadn't in quite some time. It almost tickled as his fingers started at her neck and then began moving down past the small of her back. He then caressed her shoulders and neck and slowly worked his hands down, stopping just over her stomach. He then proceeded to place his hand on her left inner arm, working down her side, passing gently over her buttock. and uh, it, that's OK and, and, and down her leg to her calf. Then he proceeded up her thigh, stopping just at the uppermost portion of her leg. He continued in the same manner on her right side. And then suddenly stopped, rolled over, and became silent. As Lena had become quite aroused by Ole's caressing, she asked him in a loving voice, Ole, that was wonderful. Why did you stop? To which Ole responded, I found the remote. (laughs) Oh, mercy. Well, we have Mike and Joel Jones all to thank for that. <laughs> and they pass that along to me. There's a little girl that saw Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs for the first time. Told the story to her mother. She said, you know, here's what happened. And, and at the very end, she said, and the handsome, pris, the handsome prince kissed Snow White. And then you know what happened next? And the mother said, yes. They lived happily ever after. And the daughter said, no, they got married. <laughs> you know, in truth, a lot of people, most of us, probably all of us, got married because we enjoyed the courting relationship, and we expected that that is what we were saying yes to, and the rest of our lives were just going to be this love boat, But the problem is, of course, when you marry, you marry a sinner. And so does your spouse, by the way. The Bible addresses this, and it doesn't gloss over the reality of marriage, both the good parts and the bad parts, and those nights when you're just trying to find the remote. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs. We are making our way through the Bible taking just a simple, single message from each book of the Bible, and we come to a book of the Bible that I dare say you have never heard preached, unless you've been around Tommy Nelson's ministry up in Denton, and then you've heard a lot, because this is, uh, this is his, this is his um, greatest hit, as it were. And Tom's done a great job with this book. But the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, it's, uh, if you have the King James Bible, it may even be called Canticles, which means song. It just refers to one of the many songs that King Solomon wrote. And the title, Song of Songs, literally means the greatest of songs. We have a similar phrase when we say that the the Lord of Lords or the King of Kings, we mean the greatest of lords, the greatest of kings. The Song of Songs is the greatest of songs. And I'll be up front with you, I don't believe that the Song of Songs is a metaphor for God and Israel. I certainly don't believe it's a metaphor for Jesus and the church. I think it is what it claims to be. It is a book on biblical marriage. And specifically, uh, the, the details of marriage that often we don't talk about in the church, which is why, when the Lord inspired Solomon to write this book, the, the details of what it talks about are, are veiled behind metaphors. The frankly erotic conversations behind these uh, in, in this book are hidden in metaphors so that even kids can read the Bible and be okay with it. But those of us who um, read through these, these metaphors and actually do some study to figure out what in the world Solomon's talking about, we come to find a book that is very, very personal and very, very instructional also, not only for marriage, but also for, for life. So I'd like us to look at this book not just from the perspective of marriage, though that's a clear application of it, but the principle applied in marriage can also be applied even if you're single. So don't feel like you can just go get an early seat at Luby's if if you're not married and you're here today, because the Word of God is profitable. As Paul wrote, he was speaking of the Old Testament, including this book, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. For teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So, let's look together at this book. Let's read the first several verses here, and then we'll set the context. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you life-changing, isn't it? Well, these are metaphors. And all throughout the book, we have these kinds of metaphors that, um, that give us insight into the truth. And we'll talk about that. Well, I read an article in the Dallas Morning News not too long ago about zoo researchers that, in the Dallas Zoo who were trying to figure out how to get ocelots to mate. They were having trouble getting ocelots to mate because they were in their endangered species, so they found a scent that drives female ocelots crazy. And it was Calvin Klein's Obsession for Men. (laughs) True story, Dallas Morning News. In fact, the female ocelots reacted more powerfully to obsession for men than they did natural odors like rat feces and ocelot scent, if you can imagine. Well, I saw that article and I thought, you know what, that's like the Song of Solomon, the first few verses, because Solomon's fiance, his bride-to-be, says in these opening verses, may he kiss me, and then she says why she wants him to kiss her, Because his love is better than wine, his oils have a pleasing fragrance. But it wasn't just uh, his oils or the fact that he was wearing this particular cologne, but she says, your name is like purified oil, like the very best oil is your name. In other words, his reputation. And his reputation is what is attractive, his character is what is attractive to this lady. Uh, I saw some statements not long ago, you've probably heard them, but they're always worthy of repetition because kids make the greatest observations about Scripture. Uh, These are particularly related not only to the Bible, but also to marriage. Kids say this, St. Paul cavorted to Christianity. He preached holy acrimony, which is another name for marriage. The seventh commandment is thou shalt not admit adultery. (laughs) A Christian should have only one spouse. This is called monotony. (laughs) Solomon, one of David's sons, had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. (laughs) Hmm. Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire by night. (laughs) I love that. Well, character is what is the most attractive part of who we are. It, and Solomon's bride-to-be loves Solomon, not just because he's wearing obsession for men, but because of his character. In fact, whenever she would smell the scent, she would be reminded of his character. And we have that same, that same memory, too. When we'll smell a perfume or we'll smell a cologne, and we're, when we think instantly of the person we know, that uh, the smells like that. Like, for example, if you ever hug Chuck, you're going to smell like Chuck for the rest of the day. <laughs> Nobody has that particular cologne but him. In fact, it was one, one time I was at some place and I smelled it and I thought, is Chuck here? <laughs> Looked around, but I didn't see him. I listened, but I didn't, didn't hear him. Solomon's bride-to-be is attracted to Solomon's character. And I take it also that this is Solomon's first marriage, and that's important to say because Solomon had quite a few. He had not only 700 porcupines, but he had 300 real wives. 300 wives. 300 wives. I mean, you'd have to have name tags at some point. <laughs> Solomon's fiance saw character, and so she makes a personal request. Look at verse 4. She says, draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. In the context, the Hebrew suggests to me uh, that it would be better to translate it, may the king bring me into his chambers. You could translate the Hebrew that way. And I believe it's better translated that way yet because they're not married. They're not yet married. Um, He hasn't brought her into the bedroom yet, but she wants him to. And she wants to marry him. And then we're introduced to a neutral party. You may have, your Bible may insert in the text itself, like if you have a Ryrie, I know it does. The NIV study Bible may do it. In the New American Standard, you have to look in the margin to try to figure out who's talking. Because in Hebrew, of course, you can, if you read the word you, you can tell whether it's male or female or singular or or plural. But in English, we don't have that. We just see you. And we don't know who you is. But the margin gives us some insight. Like, for example, verse 4, halfway through it, where it says, we will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly, do they love you? Uh, we're told that this is the chorus in verse 4. Re- we will rejoice in you. So, there's this, there's this um, this group that's sort of off to the side that sort of is commenting on the relationship between Solomon and his fiancée. It's sort of a a chorus of ladies. And uh, wine, they say, we rejoice in you more than wine. It's a common drink of celebration, and the chorus rejoices in their love more than usual. The New International Version makes the very last statement there, rightly do they love you as the woman's response to them. And I think they're right. Uh, rightly do they love you, meaning rightly do the, this chorus think that you are uh, wonderful, because the you there is in reference to Solomon. We can't tell that from the English, but in the Hebrew the, it's singular and masculine. Several years ago, I did a very intense study of the Song of Solomon, and I literally translated every verse from the Hebrew, and I discovered a principle as I went throughout this whole book that is true in marriage, but honestly, it's true in any relationship, that there are three things that make a a close relationship effective, three things that make a close relationship very, very powerful. And basically, you could summarize these three things this way (laughs) – affirmation 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 and you see this throughout the book it was the thing that absolutely jumped off the page to me as I read through the Song of Solomon you don't have to translate from the Hebrew to get it if you just read through this book this couple is constantly affirming one another there is back and forth this comment on character comment on looks comment on a a situation, and there's affirmation over and over and over. And so, here's a principle. A love that lasts includes a context of frequent mutual affirmation. A love that lasts includes a context of frequent mutual affirmation. When positive affirmation is the norm, then criticism has a nice, soft place to land. When criticism is the norm, then affirmation coming every once in a while is just like, a, like a, a drop of water on a hot skillet. It just goes away. Look at the example of what Solomon's affirmation of her did for her. Look at verse 5. She says, "'I am black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem.'" like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, O you who my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon?' For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? She starts off by saying, the sun has burned me. I am black but lovely. I, I am, I, the sun has burned me because my, my brothers basically made me work in the vineyard. And she says, I haven't been able to take care of my own vineyard, my own looks, as it were. In that day, well, let me say it another way, in our day, to be tan is to be beautiful. I mean, we'll even pay to go to a tanning booth and lay under this thing that, that puts all this dark stuff on our bodies. Or we'll buy lotion and spread it on our face and have instant tan, though I'm not sure our president has figured out yet that that doesn't look great. <laughs> but in, in our day, to be tan is ideally to look good. In that day, though... It, it showed that you were blue-collar. It showed that you had to work outside. It's not like Solomon. Solomon w- would be very, mu- very sheltered, and he would be, she assumes, attracted to women who would be fair-skinned, as, as much as a, a Jew is fair-skinned. And so she's self-conscious about that. I've, I've had to work outside. I'm dark. And so she asks Solomon, using the metaphor of a shepherd, Where do you want to pasture your flock? Where do you want your flock to lie down? In other words, what woman do you want? She feels self-conscious. So she's opened up in spite of her insecurities, in spite of her looks, and in spite of the insecurity of their relationship. Look how Solomon responds. Verse 8. If you yourself don't know, most beautiful among women... "'Go forth on the trail of the flock "'and pasture your your young goats "'beside the tents of the shepherds. "'To me, my darling, "'you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. "'Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, "'your neck with strings of beads.'" So, guys, try that next time you're out at a romantic dinner. Honey, you remind me of a horse. (laughs) It worked for Solomon. Well, it worked for Solomon because there's, there's an idea there that, that uh, Solomon's mare is uh, unique among the chariots of Pharaoh. Pharaoh had nothing but stallions. So you can imagine not only would she stand out, but she'd cause quite a stir. You turn a mare loose among a bunch of stallions, and there's going to be a reaction. Solomon says, You are that unique, you are that special to me. You're questioning how I feel about you as opposed to all these others. He said, to me, you are most beautiful among women. This is his response. And I love it because it gives us a practical comment, a practical application that he saw something in her that he valued and he affirmed it. Again, affirmation, affirmation, affirmation. So, guys, try try telling your wife that if she cooks well, tell her she cooks well. If she handles a situation socially with grace, then tell her that. Pull her aside and say, you know what? That was fantastic. If your husband is good with carpentry or if he takes the trash out, I love it when Kathy tells me, thanks for taking out the trash. i never forget that. And when I take out the trash, I think, you know what? This, this honors my family. This honors my wife. Even simple things like this. I remember 20-something years ago, Kathy and I were standing in Israel for the very first time there on the Mount of Olives. I could take you right to the place where we were standing. And we were looking out over the Mount, Mount of Olives, and she said, uh, we were looking over the, city, the old city of Jerusalem, and she said, tell me about, what's that right over there? And so for like the next five minutes, I just told her about all this stuff. And then she said, you know what? I think you'd be really good at this. Well, obviously, I've never forgot that. And and praise the Lord, that's been a, that's been a, a major part of the ministry that he's given us, is, is taking folks to Israel. But my point is that at that affirmation, which I've never forgotten, has gone a long way in not only me feeling better about the process, but about God guiding us, about God guiding me. And that's what affirmation does for us. But we want to be careful that with the affirmation it doesn't have a hook on it, or it doesn't have strings on it, we we say it doesn't have strings attached. You, You don't want to say something like, thank you for spending time with the children, finally. That is not affirmation. A pat on the back is only a few vertebrae away from a kick in the pants. (laughs) And yet, they are worlds apart in terms of results. Billy Sunday once said, try praising your wife, even if it does frighten her at first. (laughs) That's great. Well, Song of Solomon, chapter one, that's great, but this is all before marriage. What about after? We won't go through the details of the book though some of you have come to me in fact I don't know more than any other book in anticipation some of you have come to me with questions like what are you going to do when you get to Song of Solomon <laughs> And another one came to me and said hey be careful when you get to Song of Solomon try to keep it clean <laughs> So anyway we're going to we're going to skim over and I'll save these some of the metaphors of uh, Chapter Two, Chapter Three. And uh, yeah, I'll just kind of point you to uh, the end of Chapter four and Chapter Five, if you'll promise to stay with me for the rest of the talk. But let's flip over to Chapter eight. This book goes through the gamut. Of marriage, It talks about the wedding. It talks about the wedding night. It talks about their first fight. It talks about reconciliation. And then in chapter 8, we get to the long end of life. We get to the end of the story. We get to that part of marriage that those of us who've been married a long time spend most of our time in. Kathy and I went to dinner several years ago, and I think it was a Red Lobster, and we overheard. We, we, were sit, we were sitting down kind of in the far back corner because we like to sit away from noise if we can. And these two other ladies, these two uh, elderly ladies, can I say that? These two elderly ladies? They must have been in their, you know, hundreds or, or so. <laughs> Came and sat down at the table, you know, right beside us, where we could hear what they said. And the server, after he set, after he set the ladies down, she, one of the ladies, said, uh, "Our husbands will be joining us in a minute. Uh, just send over the best two looking guys that you that come in." <laughs> so uh, anyway, not long, these two guys come walking in, two elder, elderly gentlemen, and they come and they sit down with their wives, and they said, uh, "How?" The, the, the ladies say, How did you find us? And the, the husband says, We just look for the two best looking ladies in here. <laughs> Maybe that was rehearsed, but, but it sounded more like it, it was just the way it was. One thing I loved about uh, Janelle remember, Janelle, when she was in the class, she always talked about how handsome James is. How handsome James is. She would always say, He's the most handsome guy in the room. And I just love that. How do you make that last? How do you go to Red Lobster and still be the best-looking guy in your hundreds? <laughs> well, the climax of the book of Song of Solomon gives us a lesson on that. The picture of love begins, if we can begin in the middle. It's so hard to just kind of drop drop down in the middle of this context without setting it up better. But look at verse 5, Song of Solomon 8, verse 5, the chorus Says this: Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Then the bride says, Beneath the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she was in labor and gave you birth. So the picture here is Solomon and his wife are pictured leaving a place of trials. Likely that's what the wilderness is here representing. And she is leaning on him. And Solomon's wife uses this illustration of uh, his mother giving birth as sort of a metaphor of, of pain that often, often accompanies marriage. Not only is there the joy of conception, but there's also the reality of children. I, I have to laugh. I heard somebody one time, I don't know what sitcom it was on, but I just laughed when I heard it. Uh, he said that love, he said that, lo- that life is mostly, or that the movies are mostly about sex and seldom about children. And he says, but marriage, especially early on, it's just the opposite. It's mostly about children and seldom about sex. (laughs) The reality is that there is so much more behind marriage than just what Hollywood shows us. And verse 5 gives us that implication. They're coming out of the wilderness, and they even hearken back to the painful beginning of life. And the book shows us the full spectrum of family, it doesn't really get into children so much, but in the early relationship between a husband and a wife. And it shows us that love hurts, that true love has its conflicts. We didn't get into that um, early on in in some of these earlier chapters, there is a clear conflict starting in chapter three. But uh, they work through that, and the book shows how they work through that. And they have worked through it. And so there is this deepening of love that occurs as a result of having pushed through it rather than taking the easy way out, which is really a, just a different, harder direction. Verse 6, look at what she says. Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Like a seal, she says. She's not talking about an um, Antarctic animal uh, seal. We're talking about a, uh, an impression that you, would, that you would press in hot wax or in some kind of a impression that would be on a rolled up scroll that gave proof that it wasn't tampered with. That when you put a scroll, a seal on a scroll and delivered it, and when it was delivered unbroken, you realize that no one is, has read this but you. There is an exclusivity she is requesting. Put me like a seal over your heart. Nobody gets in there but me. It's, it's an exclusivity she is requesting. It's sort of like what a a, a notary public also does today. There is a stamp not only of exclusivity, but of ownership. You're you're mine and mine alone. And she says, she wants to be like a seal over his heart, and she makes the request, notice the parallelism, death and sheol. She says, like a seal over your heart, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as severe death as Sheol. What what does she mean? Sheol, the place of the dead, never gives back its dead, never does death. And in a sense, that's what jealousy is. The passion of a jealous love is like a fire that ultimately, we're told here, is from God. It's very possessive, and once it receives, it never gives back, and that it is permanent. Maybe that's the best way to describe it. Death is permanent. Sheol is permanent and a love that is given to someone else is permanent. There's a seal over it, and it is exclusive, and this is her request. And we're told here that it's jealous. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Jealousy. We hear jealousy, and we tend to think the negative way, but there's a positive way of jealousy. Uh, I read this, thought it was cute. Adam it stayed out a few nights too late, and Eve was getting concerned about it. You're seeing other women, she said. There are no other women, Adam said. Well, this went on until Adam was awakened one night with Eve poking him in the chest. He says, what are you doing? She says, I'm counting your ribs. (laughs) That's not the kind of jealousy Sago <laughs> Solomon's talking about. There's a godly jealousy. There's not just the jealousy of paranoia, the jealousy of distrust. There's the jealousy that, that longs for all that is right. We're told that our God is a jealous God, and God does nothing wrong. So for God to be a jealous God is his passion for us to have an exclusive devotion to him. This is what this text is teaching. To be like a seal over the heart of your spouse is speaking of the exclusivity. It's speaking of ownership. It's speaking of permanence. It's speaking of a passion of devotion that is lifelong and that no one breaks that seal. As Jesus said, what God has joined, let no man put asunder. Here in the Song of Solomon, jealousy is not selfish or insecure. Like Paul wrote, love is not rude. Love is not jealous. That's a different kind of jealousy. We're talking about a a jealousy that is compared to the fire of God, the flame of the Lord. It's it's like God's jealous love. Look at verse 7. We're told more about this flame. We're told that many waters cannot quench love nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. Chris Thurman wrote this. He said, for some reason, maybe because familiarity really does breed some contempt, we sometimes go from our dating years when we did things out of desire with little sense of what we were owed in return to our Stuck with each other, married years, when everything is totaled up for payback. This is the idea that I clean the dishes tonight, it's your turn to do it tomorrow night. This is the idea that uh, I've cleaned the kitchen so my wife should let me watch football. It's sort of give and take in, this, in the sense of, of uh, I give and then I take. But that's not serving one another, is it? That's trading green stamps. That's cashing in IOUs. That's marking up tally lists and and balancing the scales if some if some in some way they ever can balance. We think of Jesus and his great great model for us in Ephesians the husbands are told to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Christ did not love a perfect bride. He loved an imperfect bride. In fact, he he died for an imperfect bride. And this is a picture of husbands, and it's also, by principle, a picture of both husbands and wives. Jesus wasn't trading green stamps on the cross. He gave himself up because of love and because it was the will of the Father. Um, He died for us, rose again, for any who would believe to have sins forgiven. So if we keep score, the bad thing about keeping score is that different people keep score different ways and you always feel like somebody owes you. It's true in marriage, but it's also true in any relationship. Think of any close relationship that you have and there's this feeling of reciprocity. Well, they gave me a gift for Christmas, but I didn't give them a gift for Christmas. I I need to give them a gift for Christmas. Or they gave me a birthday card, well, I need to make a note and be sure and write them a birthday card. There's an there's an element of a sense of that reciprocity that's okay. But it can really get off balance though when we begin to measure the health of a relationship by are we balanced? The Bible doesn't do that. Christ was a servant. To give his life. The couple in the Song of Songs here demonstrates that the text is teaching the power of love's devotion is stronger than the pain of love's defeats. Here, over and over, we're, we're shown that um, the, the passion and their commitment is like a seal on the arm, it's like it's permanent as death is permanent. It's as passionate as the fire of God. In fact, it's a fire that is so passionate that we're told that many waters can't even put it out. It's an unquenchable torch. It's a, it's a fire on a torch that can't be put out. Many waters can't take care of it. A river overflowing won't put it out. In fact, if you were to give all the riches of your house, it would be utterly despised. It's priceless. It's limitless. It's permanent. It's permanent. So here's the second principle. A love that lasts is a love that's given unconditionally. And there's a lot implied with that. If it's unconditional, then it's permanent. If it's unconditional, there's no weighing the balance. We trust God for the deficit. Solomon wrote the book on commitment in marriage. Interesting. Solomon wrote the book on it. And yet, Solomon laid an egg when it came to actually living it out. So, so sad. And yet, when we see, like we saw last time in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon came back around, Uh, not so much in marriage, but he came back around in his understanding of life that if you you are using marriage or if you're using any context to get what you want out of life, the irony is you're never going to get what you want out of life. It's got to be the Lord that we're pursuing. And if the Lord is in it, then life is not vanity. Marriage is not vanity. Anything we do in life is not vanity. It has purpose and meaning. But apart from God being involved, it is vanity. Years ago when I was pastoring, I would occasionally do premarital counseling, which is sort of fun and easy because the couple will say yes to anything. It's really fun. And there was one couple, in fact, they were so giddy that they just ba- would bounce into the office and they'd sit down in the chairs and they'd be holding hands the whole time and they just, you know, all smiles and saying yes and we'd read the Bible and read about the, you know, the difficulties ahead of them in marriage and oh, yes, 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 that's fine. <laughs> well, Kathy and I used to have, who lived on our street, a policeman. And one day I walked over, I saw him out there and I said, hey, can I borrow a set of handcuffs for about, you know, two days. And he said, he said, why? So I explained to him what I wanted to do, and he said, sure. So he gave me the handcuffs and the keys to them. And so next day, or next time this uh, giddy couple came bouncing into the office, right before the, uh, the, uh, our time was over, I said, now, I've got one more thing I'd like to do, but before I do it, I'd like you to both go to the bathroom. And they looked at me like, you're crazy. I said, just trust me. So they went to the restroom, came back in, and I said, now, close your eyes and hold hands. So they did, and I cuffed them. And they opened their eyes, and they realized they were handcuffed. Oh, that, was just, that just looks like the funnest thing. Until they realized I didn't have the keys with me. I'd given them to her mother on purpose, and I said, here's your assignment for the rest of the day. I already told them, I'm going to be giving you an assignment where you need to spend the rest of the day together. So for the rest of the day, everything you do, you're handcuffed. And they sort of laughed, and then then they realized why I asked them to go to the bathroom. And I said, you know, you're going to have to go again, and that's the only time that you can have be uncuffed. But I'd recommend you make a beeline to your mom's house uh, when you think that's about to happen because she's got the keys. So they did, and they went all throughout the day with this. They came in the next week, and uh, I said, now, tell me some of the things that you learned about marriage from being handcuffed. And they gave me some great principles, and I'm going to read a few of them. They said, there's no separation even at times when it's very inconvenient. They said everything you do affects the other person, as do most decisions in marriage. They said you're required to serve one another, like opening doors, holding items, pouring drinks. They said communication is essential, like let's go this way. And the last one was great. They said, holding hands makes the bonds more fun. You know, a lot of marriages today ignore the value of frequent affirmation and instead turn to the other side of things. And I thought about that with regard to Adam and Eve. It didn't take long for marriage to do that, did it? As soon as they became sinners and God showed up asking for an account. The first thing Adam did was go, the woman, you gave me. And so not only is, is, is he blaming uh, blaming Eve, but he's blaming the Lord. It's not my fault I sinned. It's the woman. And you're, you're you, Lord. You gave her to me. God goes to Eve, and Eve blames the serpent. We play the blame game a lot of times in marriage, instead of looking at ourselves and granted there are times definitely where uh, other people are involved but uh, the reality is the bible like i said last week gives us our responsibilities in any relationship again not just marriage any relationship in terms of our responsibilities not in terms of our rights well the song of solomon i uh, i urge you to read this with a good commentary and uh, fasten your seatbelts when you get to the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5. I'll just, just leave that with you. But the principles there are so essential. A love that lasts includes frequent mutual affirmation. A love that lasts is, is a love that's given unconditionally. Let's pray. Our Father, your son Jesus was the only perfect human who ever walked this earth. In every relationship that he was engaged in, he handled it with perfection. He handled it appropriately, and his words never missed the mark. And yet, he was misunderstood, he was misquoted, he was, mis, uh, he was unappreciated, and ultimately he was killed. So when we come into relationships with one another far from Jesus, we come with our imperfections very aware, both personally and with either a marriage partner or with friends and family. Help us, Father, to apply that what Song of Solomon teaches. It teaches a lot. It teaches a lot in marriage, but in any relationship, it also tells us the value of frequent regular affirmation and of a commitment that lasts a long time in fact that death can't even uh, that the permanence of death is a picture of the permanence of our devotion and the fire and jealousy of god is what drives us strengthen us lord to be faithful to the to the vows that we've made whether they're in marriage or whether they're in simple friendship that we might honor you and you'd be honored through our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.